Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way in which you... uh, breathed out your word through the writers of Scripture, done in such a way that it utilized their individual backgrounds and personalities, and yet you still guaranteed that what they wrote was free from error, that the writings of Scripture bear the mark of eternity, and that as we read and as we study your word, we feed upon Your grace, we feed upon all that you have provided for us, and it's through this uh, feeding upon your word that we are strengthened spiritually. And as God the Holy Spirit takes the things that we read, the things that we study, he then converts that in our thinking in a way that enables us to think the way you would have us to think and to live the way you would have us to think, to live, so that we can honor and glorify you in all that we do. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that we would be once again uh, encouraged and strengthened, and that we might come to understand your grace more clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. We continue our uh, introduction, opening to the opening verses in Colossians chapter 1 to Paul's uh, salutation and greeting In the first two verses, last time I focused on the first part of the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Last week, we focused upon Paul as the apostle of grace. Not that the other apostles did not emphasize grace. Peter certainly did. John certainly did. But that in some ways, Paul is uh, more... has a more strong approach to grace, a more detailed approach in explaining and explicating all that is entailed in God's salvation, God's provision for the spiritual life. And we come to understand grace in uh, all of its manifold dimensions. This morning I want to look at Timothy, who is with the Apostle Paul as he is under house arrest in Rome, And Timothy is included here, as he is in some other epistles, uh, in the opening salutation. Uh, Timothy is an example of God's grace in the life of 
uh, an individual, and there are many lessons that we can learn from studying uh, Timothy's life. Timothy is mentioned by Paul in the salutation of five other epistles. He's mentioned in 2 Corinthians, he's mentioned in Philippians, in both 1 and 2 Thessalonians, as well as in Philemon. If we go back through the book of Acts from the time that Paul first uh, begins to uh, associate Timothy with himself and trace his journeys on his second and third missionary journeys, we discovered that these particular locations in Philippi and in uh, Thessalonica specifically, as well as Corinth, were places where uh, Timothy also had a significant ministry as a representative of the Apostle Paul. So there's a close personal connection there between Timothy and those congregations. We also learn as we study through the passages in Scripture where Paul talks about Timothy that Timothy is was very close to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul looked upon Timothy, who was much younger than he, as his true son in the faith, and that it was Timothy more than any of the other associates of the Apostle Paul that um, meant more to Paul, that he poured more of himself into, and that he relied upon more than others. And it was Timothy, as well as a few others, but it was Timothy more than any other who stood uh, firm with the Apostle Paul and did not desert him. We're reminded at the end of Second Timothy, as Paul sees that his life is about to end, that many had deserted him, uh, but Timothy was still faithful, and he asked him to come to him and to bring him various things uh, that he needed. So Timothy was very special to the Apostle Paul, and it is in Timothy that we see some uh, character traits that are praised by the Apostle Paul that should be evident in any believer. We also come to understand that uh, the difference in personality. I find it striking that the Apostle Paul, on the one hand, had been uh, raised in a strict pharisaical home in Tarsus. He goes to Jerusalem when he was uh, about 14 years of age, 13 years of age, where he was trained under one of the uh, greatest of all of the uh, second, or excuse me, first century rabbis, Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis uh, of all time as well. And here the Apostle Paul, who is just driven, he's, he's so goal-oriented, he is so focused on uh, serving God. He, he was focused in a wrong way, focused on the wrong objective before he was saved, after he is saved. Uh, he understands grace, and he's focused on that. And he, you, you get the sense from Paul that despite some physical maladies, he is strong. He has an extremely strong personality. He would be the kind that would just walk into a room and, and everybody would stop and know that he was there. And not because he was uh, physically so, uh, so great and imposing, but just because of his personality. And yet when we read about Timothy, we find a personality that is very much different from the Apostle Paul. We find a man who seemingly had a number of physical uh, uh, illnesses that he has, does not have near the degree of self-confidence or confidence in God uh, that the Apostle Paul had. And in terms of personalities, they were just uh, poles apart. And yet, the Apostle Paul 
uh, loved Timothy. He was extremely dependent upon Timothy, and he trusted Timothy because the issue never is personality. The issue is always our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have found over the years that it doesn't really matter what another person's personality is, that if their goal and desire and objective in life is to know the Word of God and to uh, live that out in their life, that uh, I can get along with just about anybody because personality isn't the issue. Personality is only an issue when you're not walking by the Spirit and you're not focused on the things of God. So let's learn a little bit about Timothy. Very instructive. Number one, Timothy's background. What was his family like? We don't know anything about his father other than his father was Gentile. In Acts 16.1, it stated that his father uh, was Greek. That's all that we know about his father. So he was raised in a household where his father's Greek, but his mother was Jewish. His grandmother was Jewish. And we uh, get the impression that they were uh, very devoted to what God had revealed in the Old Testament. Both his mother and his grandmother were believers in the Old Testament sense. And that the Apostle Paul came to where they lived in uh, Derby and Lystra, that area in uh, what is now South Central Turkey, what was then the southern province of Galatia. And on that first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul, as was his standard procedure, went first to the synagogue and began to explain how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies related to the Messiah. And that as he came in the flesh and that he died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And there were many within the synagogues in those two villages that uh, believed and trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, that he is the one who died for their sins. But then there were others within the Jewish community who reacted to that. And they caused uh, riots and they caused antagonism and they spread lies and rumors about the Apostle Paul. And so there was always that reaction that would come from those who were just uh, set on maintaining their uh, Jewish traditions that had developed in the uh, Second Temple period that emphasized, put more emphasis on the overt rather than the inner uh, spiritual makeup of the individual. And so as that developed, Paul and, uh, and Barnabas were followed, and they had a number of different adventures that way. But then Paul returned back to Antioch. When he left for his second missionary journey, he went back to visit those same churches that he had established on the first journey. And he goes back to Derby and Lystra again. And this is where we first hear of Timothy in Acts 16.1, that Paul returned to Derby and Lystra, and there was a disciple there named Timothy. And what we learn about him being identified by Luke as a disciple is that, that Timothy had followed uh, in, in the footsteps of his mother and his grandmother, and that he too had trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, during that first visit of Paul's. Now, he's not, he was, neither of them, none of them were mentioned at that time, but it's clear from this reference in Acts 16 that uh, they had been there and that they had responded to the gospel on Paul's first visit. 
And he became a disciple, that is, a student. That is the meaning of the word disciple, someone who is a student, someone who's focused on learning from a, from a teacher. And in the scriptures, the word disciple is usually used of a believer. It's not synonymous with a believer, but is used of those believers who are serious about their spiritual life, serious about studying the word and living the word and living in obedience to God. And so we see that Timothy as a young man is focused on the study of God's word and focused on his own spiritual growth. We're told also in that verse that he was uh, the son of a certain Jewish woman who was a believer, and that indicates that she had believed on that when Paul had been there in the first missionary journey. In Second Timothy, in Second Timothy one five, Paul states, uh, "When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice." And I am persuaded in you also. It seems like when Paul wrote Second Timothy, Timothy was going through a down period when he uh, perhaps was questioning his service to God, questioning his gift as a pastor and his leadership skills. And Paul is encouraging him and reminding him of what God had performed uh, in his life. In Second Timothy 3.15, Paul makes the statement to Timothy that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. So it's very likely that Timothy, as well as his mother and grandmother, was an old, was a believer in the Old Testament sense until uh, Paul came to uh, their hometown and explained the gospel, and then he became a believer in the New Testament uh, sense, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Timothy was a believer. He's positive. He wants to grow. He wants to mature. He is demonstrating this in his life and in his character so that when Paul returned in Acts 16, 1 through 3, we're told that he had, that Timothy had a good reputation among those uh, in the church there in his hometown. Now we're told that also in Acts 16, uh, one through three, that when Paul came back on his second journey, that he met Timothy, and it was his desire to take Timothy along with him as an assistant on his trip. Now, what Paul had in mind was that he was going to mentor Timothy. Another word that we would use is that Timothy would be an apprentice to the Apostle Paul. And I think this is a good idea. I think this is one of the best ways in which a pastor can train young men who uh, believe they have the gift of pastor-teacher and want to go into the ministry. We have developed a system over the centuries in Christianity of sending uh, young men to seminary. But seminary does, is not a substitute for that apprenticeship mentality. There are many things that uh, a pastor needs to learn and needs to understand uh, that don't have a whole lot to do with the academics of seminary. I have seen this happen time and time again. I saw it happen uh, to some degree in my own life when I was a young seminary student. I've seen it happen to many other seminary students is that you go to seminary and you go through four years of training and your level of knowledge about the scripture just uh, takes off like a rocket ship but your spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is still just barely uh, moving along. 
And one of the greatest dangers to pastors becomes evident in uh, young men in seminary, and that is arrogance. And often you see young men think that they know more than any pastor they ever listened to because they had just been exposed to the latest, greatest uh, views of theology and exegesis that these seminary professors have communicated to them, and they don't have the humility at that point to recognize that they need to stay under the authority of a, of a uh, pastor who is seasoned and has matured and has grown through these uh, processes. And there are always going to be times in a young man's life when he thinks that the pastor that he is, under whose authority he, he sits, doesn't quite understand it right yet. But in most cases, uh, I find that, um, that a lot of pastors have l- learned and forgotten more about whatever the topic, the issue is, uh, than this young man thinks uh, at his time of growth. He's just beginning to learn a few things. And uh, usually if you've got a good pastor who's a student of the Word and continues to study uh, throughout his uh, life in the, as a pastor, uh, then he understands things in a much deeper, much more mature way than uh, a young student does. But that's why it's important to have this kind of uh, personal apprenticeship type of ministry. And I've had the privilege over the years of having that kind of a relationship with a number of different men and continue to seek young men who uh, have the gift of pastor-teacher who desire to have that kind of uh, mentor relationship. I think it's exceptionally important. So this is the kind of situation that Paul set up with Timothy and and as well as Titus, uh, as well as a number of others, Epaphras, who is uh, the pastor of the church in Colossae, as well as many others, and it is uh, the, the Apostle Paul did a fabulous job in the training of many of these men, but he had his failures as well. There's always uh, those who come along and think they have the gift of pastor-teacher. Uh, in some cases they do, but then they get distracted by one thing or another, and they go in another direction. So we find the Apostle Paul coming to Derby and Lystra, Uh, in Acts 16, and he wants to take Timothy with him, but he realizes that because Timothy uh, was raised in a home where his father is a Gentile, that Timothy was never circumcised, and that this may become an issue in his ministry. Now, we have to remember a couple of things here, because there are those who see some sort of contradiction between uh, Paul's emphasis on Timothy being circumcised before he can accompany him on his journey, and the fact that Paul did not uh, emphasize, Paul did not uh, um, allow Titus to be uh, circumcised, as he relates the episode in Galatians chapter two. And what's important to recognize is that these things are happen at almost the same time; they're very closely related in time, and, and we miss that. And In Paul's first missionary journey, he first went to Cyprus, and then he went to uh, the southern part of the Roman province of Galatia, where we have the towns of Derbe, Lystra, and Iconium. When he left there, he went back to Antioch. When he was in Antioch, he discovered that, that he had made some enemies in southern Galatia, and these enemies were these uh, Jewish 
uh, leaders in the synagogues who opposed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, well, that's all great and fine and good, but if you really want to have uh, everything that God has for you, you, it's not just enough to believe in Jesus. You also have to be circumcised. You have to, uh, just like becoming part of, of uh, Judaism, you have to be circumcised and you have to go through this ritual or you cannot truly experience the grace of God or, or be saved. And so this developed a huge conflict within the early church. Those who were uh, emphasized circumcision, uh, in other words, it wasn't just enough to believe in Jesus. You had to believe and do other things. Now, down through the centuries, there have been a num- number of different permutations of that. There are those who say you have to believe and be baptized. There are those who say you have to believe and be the member of the right denomination. There's others that say you have to believe and have good works. Uh, but there's always those who want to add something to faith, that they have rejected the idea that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. So I want you to hold your place here in Colossians and turn back uh, three or four books to Galatians. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and we'll look at uh, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Now I want to remind you that in Galatians chapter 1, Paul had made one of the strongest statements about the gospel that he ever made. He doesn't have an opening in the epistle to the Galatians where he expresses his thanks for all that God is doing with them. And he immediately just comes in and, and challenges them because they have come under the influence of these Judaizers and they've shifted to a false gospel. And in verse 6 he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. This is chapter 1, verse 6, which is not another gospel. He uses two different Greek words here to indicate it's not a different gospel of the same kind. In other words, it's not just using different words to express the same idea. It's a totally different idea. It is a, another gospel, another kind of gospel. And he says in verse 8, But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats that in verse 9. Let him be anathema. Let this person be accursed. This is an extremely strong rebuke of those who had succumbed to this false uh, gospel. Following that, he defended his apostleship in verses 11 through 17, and then he begins to uh, uh, give his own story about how his about his salvation and his uh, relationship to the other apostles. And we read in uh, then we read in chapter two, verse one. He says, "Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus." With me. Now, Titus was like Timothy. He was uh, one of the young men that Paul was mentoring in the ministry. Now, this trip to Jerusalem is identified as Paul's second trip when there was a famine in, um, in, this, in this whole area. And so he is taking some financial gifts to the church in Jerusalem in order to help. Uh, distribute food and other uh, necessities to those who were uh, were impoverished. 
And so this trip that he's referring to would be identified with that trip. He's not going there to uh, make sure he is in line with the other apostles. He's not being called to Jerusalem because there's some question about his gospel. He is going there for another reason completely. But while he is there, he had a private meeting with the other apostles. And this is uh, what is, he, he states in verse 2. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, in other words, to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So he says, I, I sat down with the other apostles. I explained to them the gospel that I preached. We were in complete agreement, and they did not require anything else or any change. And then he states in verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And his point is that the apostolic body is agreed that this is the gospel, belief in Jesus Christ and in him alone. You don't need to add anything else to it. There is nothing of spiritual value in uh, coming under uh, the Mosaic law and the strictures of rabbinical Judaism. Now, uh, turning from there, leaving that passage, if you wish, turn back to Acts chapter 15. And in Acts chapter 15, we have the record of a, of a, a meeting that took place in Jerusalem sometime after that second visit. This would refer to his, probably Paul's third visit to Jerusalem, when they finally figured out that they needed to have a, a more official uh, decision in relationship to the uh, what was going on with these Judaizers uh, within, uh, within the early church. And in verse 1, Luke tells us that there were certain men who came down from Judea, that is, down to Antioch, came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So it was very clear that their message was faith in Christ is okay, but it's not enough. You have to also become circumcised. Now, the, the issue here is salvation. This is the issue that occurred, uh, first of all, in the southern province of Galatia, which was where Timothy's hometown was. That it started because of the Jews who rejected Jesus as the Messiah and were really trying to bring these Christians back under the Mosaic law and the legalistic uh, interpretations of the Pharisees in that area where Timothy has been since Paul's first missionary journey. So why is Paul having Timothy circumcised? The issue, as explained in Acts 16, had nothing to do with the gospel problem that is at the core of of uh, Galatians 2 and Acts 15. Paul, besides we have to remember that Titus was a Greek, and so there would not have been that emphasis uh, on him being circumcised. But Timothy being a Jew, because his mother was Jewish and his grandmother was Jewish, that if it became known that he was not circumcised, don't ask me how that would have been uh, known, but... Um, Having been to various uh, uh, re various cities in Turkey at the time and seeing the 
uh, public restrooms, uh, it could easily be known. I mean, it's interesting to see how they did everything out in the open in these public restrooms so that uh, the public latrines. So uh, that would have possibly become known and easily become known. And so rather than having a non-issue become an issue, Paul insisted that Timothy should first be circumcised. That way, uh, when he went to the synagogues and Timothy was with him, it would not be a distraction to the message. So the issue in having Timothy circumcised had nothing to do with a doctrinal issue or with the content of the gospel. It simply had to do with the fact that we have to recognize at certain times when we are trying to witness to people that we have to make sure we avoid things that are not issues. We don't want to get distracted by politics. We don't want to get distracted by uh, discussions about Mormonism or about Islam or any of these other things. Keep the focus on the cross and don't let these other things get in the way. That is typically what happens. Now, sometimes when we're witnessing to folks, they raise questions that are significant questions for them. They may raise questions about creation and evolution. They may raise questions about miracles. They may raise questions about uh, the uh, historicity of the Bible. Can we really rely upon it? And there are ways that we can handle some of these questions that can put the, put the question off for a while. But for some people, these, are, pe- these questions are serious roadblocks uh, for them coming to Christ. And so we need to learn how to... Um, answer the question to satisfy them to a certain extent, but then also explain that, well, you maybe we'll come to understand that later on. Uh, you can't understand everything all at once, but we need to uh, focus on what the primary issue is. And just to learn to use what I would call common sense, which really isn't very common, uh, and use, a, use some tact in how we present things. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's not um, he has every right in the world, and Timothy has every right in the world doctrinally to not be circumcised. But Paul recognizes that this would become an issue, and it shouldn't become an issue, and so let's not make uh, secondary things a problem. So it showed a tremendous amount of good sense on the part of the Apostle Paul. And it also helps us to understand the nature of God's grace that grace means that Jesus Christ did everything. We don't add anything to salvation. Well, in Acts chapter 16, we also learn that Timothy had a good reputation among the brethren, and this is important for a leadership, for, for a leader in the church. That's one of the uh, requirements of a pastor and a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is that they have a good reputation among those in the world. There's nothing that I find more embarrassing than having uh, you talking to somebody who is an unbeliever and they are aware of some scandal in the life of a pastor, in the life of, of a Christian leader that has been overlooked um, by the church. So Timothy had a good reputation, and he travels with Paul on his second missionary journey. Timothy went with him to Macedonia, to uh, Philippi, to Thessalonica, and uh, these are, of course, all epistles that Paul mentions him uh, in and his opening salutations. 
But when Paul left uh, Berea and went to Athens, uh, he left Timothy and Silas behind to establish the church. So we see this pattern where he takes uh, Timothy along with him, he teaches him, he instructs him, gives him a little bit of responsibility here, a little bit of responsibility there, and as Timothy fulfills that responsibility, now he is at a place where uh, Paul can leave him on his own for a short time, and so he stayed behind at Berea for a while while Paul went on to Athens. And then later, probably about five or six months later, uh, Timothy and Silas rejoined Paul at Corinth. And apparently Timothy stayed at Corinth for some while after Paul left, and we don't see Timothy mentioned again until we discover him uh, with the Apostle Paul in Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey. And so Timothy functioned as one of a series of pastors that pastored in Corinth. Now, one of the things that we learn here is that Paul was sending different men to different congregations. And Peter would be somewhere for, um, excuse me, Timothy would be somewhere for a couple of um, a couple of years. Then he would move on, and then somebody else would follow him. There were men such as Apollos and Titus and uh, Paphras and a number of others, and you don't necessarily see these early churches pastored by one man for a long period of time. They were moving around. They would leave these churches to go spend more time with the Apostle Paul. And back then, you couldn't just fly off for a couple of days, get your questions answered, and, and fly back. If they ran into a problem and needed to learn some more, they would have to take one of the men they trained and put him in the pulpit for a while, and they would uh, either go by road or by boat to wherever the Apostle Paul was and spend another six months or so getting some additional uh, training by by him, and then they would return uh, to their congregation. Uh, today we have this tendency to think that we have one pastor, that's the only person we can learn from, and that's the only person that we're going to go to church to listen to. Uh, it happens, and I've, I've seen this happen since I was a little boy, that when the pastor's gone on vacation or he's uh, out of town for that particular Sunday or he's sick, then all of a sudden attendance shrinks by 50% because we only want to listen to this one individual. God has brought uh, hundreds of different personalities and individuals into the body of Christ and given them the gift of pastor-teacher, and we can learn something from all of them if they're solid and they're teaching the truth and teaching, uh, teaching the word. And I have certainly benefited from listening to a number of excellent, in-depth teachers of the word over the period of my life. There's always been one or two who were the primary teachers and trainers who taught me the word, but I have learned from many. I have learned what not to do and how not to teach and what not to believe from many, many more. So there's always something to learn. As the old saying goes, you know, all the people who come to this church bring us joy, some by coming and some by leaving. There's always something you can learn, even if, it's, even if it is a negative. But it's interesting to see how the Apostle Paul used all of these different men that he was training and how they moved around in the first century. But the primary ministry that we know that Timothy had, because he was there the longest, that was in uh, Ephesus. But prior to that, he had moved around. Now, we know that when Paul went to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary trip, 
Timothy accompanied him as a representative of the churches in Asia and in Europe. We don't know how long he stayed with Paul. Remember, Paul went to Jerusalem, and he was there. Uh, it was there that he was put under arrest, and he spent two years under arrest uh, at Caesarea by the sea. Now, I don't believe from what we read in the book of Acts that Timothy was there for all of that time. He probably went back to Ephesus, continued his responsibilities as a pastor in Ephesus, and then at some point... After Paul had gone to Rome, and he spent another two years there in Rome, so over this four-year period of arrest, first in Caesarea and then later in Rome, uh, Paul is pretty much under, under isolation and under, under uh, and restriction, so he couldn't travel. So Timothy apparently went to Rome with Paul, and that's where we find him uh, when Paul wrote both the epistle to the Philippians as well as the epistle to the Colossians. In... Um, uh, as he, in the same time as he is writing, when uh, P, uh, Paul was writing to the uh, to the Colossians, he also wrote uh, the epistle to the Philippians, and in that we we see four or five verses that give us a real insight into Paul's uh, love for Timothy. In Philippians two nineteen, we read uh, Paul writing to the Philippians. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. So Timothy apparently at this later time goes to uh, Philippi for a short time to represent the Apostle Paul as well as to teach in that congregation. And then Paul said, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. In other words, there were others but none as qualified, none who held to the same uh, convictions of the word that the Apostle Paul did that he could send. So Timothy, he says, is like-minded. He was solid in his understanding of the word and solid in his teaching. And then Paul says about many of these others, he says, For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. In other places, Paul also praised uh, Timothy, calls him a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 3.2, and he sent him to Thessalonica to establish them and to encourage them in relation to their faith. Uh, Timothy then returned back to Paul and brought a good report on the church at Thessalonica. Now, in the two epistles that bear Timothy's name, we learn a little bit more about Timothy's character. He tended to be timid. He didn't have the same confidence as the Apostle Paul. And so Paul had to remind him in 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 7, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We know that Timothy had physical problems. He was sickly. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.23, Don't drink water only, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. 
Early on, uh, Timothy had to deal with the problem that he was viewed as being young, and we think, oh, in your 20s, but if you do the chronology, he's even into his mid to late 30s, he was viewed as being young. He's not viewed as being mature in the faith, especially by those coming out of a Jewish background where uh, maturity came when you were 50 or over. So he didn't always have the respect of those who were older. I remember my first church, I was 28 years old, and the mean age of the congregation was 55. That included all of the bed babies. So I, I was, the, most of the folks were in their late 60s and 70s, and I just looked like a kid who was wet behind the ears. And I was like the fourth pastor they had had in 10 years. So, okay, this is a problem we have in a lot of churches today. We're here forever. This is just some guy. He's only going to be here for two or three years. Why listen to him? And they just develop a revolving door on the pulpit mentality. So this is always a challenge for the pastors who are uh, young to have the respect of those who are older. Uh, Paul wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And Timothy also seems to have been a little sentimental or emotional, for Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy 1.4 uh, that he greatly desired to see him being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. So Timothy was very close to the Apostle Paul. He's with him in Rome, uh, in Rome when he writes to the Colossians, and he's included in this opening salutation as he is in five others. And then Paul addresses the epistle in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren. Now, some translations, for the NIV, for example, translate the word hagios that is usually translated saints as holy. I find that we have a problem in our church culture with both of these words, saints and holy. Holy implies something that is um, morally pure and perfect and above everybody else, and the word saints has gained that same kind of idea. But the original Greek word indicates just those who are set apart for the service of God. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is set apart positionally for the service of God at the instant of salvation. Theologically, we call this positional sanctification. And therefore, every believer is a saint, is set apart to God for his service from the instant of salvation. So Paul addresses this to the entire congregation. They are all, all those who believe in Christ, they are all saints. And then the second word, uh, translated faithful, pistos in the Greek, meaning faithful indicates that they have been consistent and they have continued to persevere in the study and application of the word in their life. So it is addressed to the saints, the sanctified ones, those set apart for the service of God and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. And then he closes with his salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says this, this is Paul's typical way of taking the uh, standard secular greeting, which in um, Greek was karain, 
but he changes it to charis because he's not just emphasizing, he's not just using the normal Greek greeting. He's using the word grace, and he's connecting it with the normal Jewish greeting, which is shalom or peace. And by putting this together in Paul's unique way, even his greeting takes on deep theological significance. He is saying that grace first, then peace. Grace and peace both come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, what we see here is that it's, in light of the context of the Colossian heresy, is that it comes directly from God to us, not through various intermediary angels or spirits, which was the idea that was promoted within the uh, Greek culture in the early stages of the development of what later became uh, known as as uh, Gnosticism. So grace, he says in verse verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The second phrase, and the Lord Jesus Christ, is probably not in the original. This is in the Textus Receptus, which is in the King James and the New King James, but it was probably not in the original, which if that is the case, that strengthens the view that Paul is already making little side swipes at the pagan views of the Colossian heresy that were uh, teaching that there were these various intermediate, intermediate stages between God and man. He would be emphasizing that grace and peace come directly from God the Father. Well, next time we'll come back and we'll begin the opening prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 3 through 8. But what we've seen here in the opening illustration is Paul's emphasis on grace. He is the unique apostle of grace. Timothy is an example of grace. And we too can be examples of grace just as Timothy was by virtue of our decision to not only trust in Christ as Savior, but also to pursue spiritual growth and to live a life that is focused on God's plan and purpose for our lives with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be reminded of your grace, that grace means unmerited or undeserved favor, that you have, out of your own character, out of your own love, provided a perfect and complete salvation for us and a perfect and complete spiritual life. Salvation comes simply by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. He died on the cross for our sins, and the certificate of death against us was then taken away, removed, wiped out at that time so that the issue is not our sin. The issue is Christ and what we think of him. Scripture says that that salvation is based on faith alone, that we are to trust or believe in Jesus as our Savior. And at at the instant that we trust in him, we have eternal life. What a wonderful, glorious message that we are freed from guilt, freed from sin, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, that the gospel would be very clear to them, and that they would simply believe that Jesus died for them. At that instant that you believe, you are regenerate, you are justified, you are forgiven, and that you become a child of God adopted into his royal family. All of these things and much more occur at the instant of salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have studied today about grace, that grace may be manifested in every area of our life as a reflection of your grace 
toward us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.